All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each and every week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? To sign up for either Chen's letter or my own, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York City during regular business hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, would like to encourage you uh, to send your questions, comments, criticisms, praises, what have you along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And I would like to invite you to follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia, jtaylormedia. Uh, also, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources and Dinocore Gold Mines and Cornerstone Capital. And we want to welcome a new sponsor today, Copper Bank Resources Corp. Copper Bank Resources Corp. And I might just add uh, that we will be talking to the CEO of Novo Resources in uh, just a few minutes from now. Um, we do have an awful lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right into the show. Uh, I have named today's show, Are We Facing Another Global Financial Crisis? And I've given the title of this week's show based on a book written by Peter Wallison uh, titled Hidden in Plain Sight. And uh, Peter was a key player in the Reagan administration in helping to shape the deregulation of those years. Peter was general counsel to uh, the Reagan Treasury Department, also White House counsel to the president. Uh, Mr. Wallison believes that increased regulation that has been set up since 2008-2009, contrary to the uh, idea that has been sold to the public, it is not decreasing the chances of future events uh, similar to 2008 and 2009, but actually increasing the probability of, of another catastrophe. So he'll be joining me in about a half an hour to talk about his thesis and uh, his book, uh, In Plain Sight, um, Hidden in Plain Sight. Um, so, uh, then, uh, we're going to be talking after that, uh, well, actually just in a couple of minutes now, as soon as, uh, before we go to our first break, I'm really pleased to have Michael Oliver with me once again. He has some very interesting views, uh, on the markets, and I think, uh, you might find them, uh, somewhat, uh, contrary to the moves of today's markets. We're seeing a big jump higher in oil, a big jump higher in stocks. Well, we'll have to see what Michael has to say, but, uh, just in reading his, uh, his prolific work, I find, uh, I, I would find it, um, uh, 
sort of surprising if he believes uh, that we're on uh, to the good times again. The party is just starting. But anyway, we'll let him, we'll hear what he has to say in just a second, uh, well, a minute or two from now. Uh, and then after I speak to, uh, after we come back from break, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Quentin Henning. He'll be with me to talk about what I think is the most exciting gold exploration development story in the world. And that is saying quite a lot because I have covered and followed a lot of these companies for many, many years. But it looks for the world to me as if Dr. Henning has found another geological environment that's similar, if not identical, to the Witwatersrand gold deposit of South Africa from where nearly a third to a half of all the gold ever mined in the history of mankind has come from. Not only that, uh, but interestingly enough, in the shorter term, uh, because exploration usually takes a long time, in the shorter term, Nova Resources, his company, is in the process of moving its project in northwest Australia toward a bankable feasibility study. So we'll be, we'll be talking to Dr. Henning uh, about that as soon as we come back uh, from the break. Uh, now, the uh, of course, the issues with uh, gold mining and exploration takes a lot of time. Uh, if you don't have the patience to wait for Novo to find the next Whitwaters Rand, uh, we have uh, with us right now Michael Oliver, who has uh, some things to tell us about uh, the markets today and uh, the things that are moving right now. So welcome, Michael. It's really good to have you with me again. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you. Uh, you know, we are constantly hearing the mainstream press trying to convince us that the Keynesian economic theories are working, and it's just a matter of time before we achieve what Keynesians call escape velocity, meaning that the economy is back, it's healthy, it's growing, we can have tax revenues to cover the deficits, everything's going to be honky-dory. It sort of reminds me of the refrain that I heard my grandparents talk about in the 1930s. Uh, the, the refrain then was, prosperity is right around the corner. Now, the idea that the economy is improving uh, doesn't seem quite right to me as I look at the data from a fundamental point of view, but I'd like to get your, your picture of things, actually, Michael, from uh, your technical viewpoint. Well, the, uh, <clears throat> I think the collapse in commodities that now everybody is aware of, uh, it, actually most commodities crested in mid-2011 along with gold, which was in August, mm-hmm. September of 2011, oil and copper However, we're somewhat laggards, oil especially. Uh, lumber might be thrown into that category, too. But things like uh, the grain market, sugar market, cocoa, uh, gold, silver, they got really beat up. and They paid their dues. They collapsed big time. But this was uh, over the last year or so. Now suddenly oil joins in and everybody's aware of it and they're all emotional and this is, a, you know, et cetera, et cetera, with all kinds of implications. And no doubt there are implications um, I can, I'm, you know, I'm, again, I'm not going to posture as an economist, but you do not take a market like oil and nuke it off the page uh, without there being some rationale for it, and, don't, and it's not merely a supply issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other weaknesses out there, and I think oil is just simply expressing that. Uh, so is the weakness in copper, and I think there's going to be vast weakness in lumber as well. Another market as well would be cattle, uh, uh, which is also a laggard commodity. But on the whole, I think the commodity collapse is uh, substantially over uh, on a price basis. Uh, you know, oil is probably, uh, my suspicion is oil has not seen its low, that this is a flare of a rally in a vacuum situation. Whereas when you sell a market out, you basically run all the sellers out. They, I mean, they sell. If, they, if they're going to sell, they've already sold. And you know, have a phenomenon where when you get bids, it's thin air, and it goes up rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, the, the offers will come back in. My strong suspicion is 
that will be in probably in the mid-50s, uh, and I suspect you're going to roll back over, and either slowly or rapidly you'll retest that low. I don't think it's a big issue whether you take out that low or don't take it out. The main issue for the oil, the things that are vulnerable related to oil, is the time issue and the general price level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's like a fuse burning. You, you want relief and you want it now. Well, right. this is not relief. This is a flare of a rally. It might be the beginning of a process over six months, nine months of a basing process. But even if it is that, and I'm not sure of that even, uh, there will be laboring at lower levels than this before that process is over. So there's no, I see no V-bottom possibility in oil where you merely simply go 50, 60, 70, et cetera. I don't, I don't see that as a, a technically viable possibility. Sometimes in some markets that is, but I do not see it in oil. Mm-hmm. So I'm of the opinion that, no, this oil is, is with us to stay uh, in terms of time, several more quarters at least. Yes, true, you may be nearer the end of the decline in terms of the price level. I mean, you're not going to zero, but uh, any, any instant glorious relief is uh, uh, you're throwing bad money after, uh, good money after bad to, to chase the oil rally. Right. As you said last week, it's the rapidity uh, with which this collapse has taken place that is really uh, likely to cause trouble. I mean, if you had a year or so or two years to, to digest this, it would be one thing. But the rapidity of, of which this, this collapse has taken place has obviously um, you know, pulled the rug out from under a lot of uh, companies, especially the highly indebted companies, the leveraged companies. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so do you think what we might be seeing here today is like a short-covering rally or something I like that? I think it's a short-covering right? rally, and it may be the beginning of a basing process, but the basing process will entail lower prices yet. So it, 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 you might be near the upper end of the basing process, in fact. Uh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. For oil. Um, now, now, but don't let that. Uh, I think it, that that cloud of quote deflation in the commodity sector tends to cloud certain other issues like gold, and I think yeah. it's great, greatly mistaken to mix gold into this. Uh, first off, gold paid its dues big time. Yeah, uh, a long time 19, before oil did. Yeah, long time. It based for a year, a due diligence basing for all during 2014, half of 2013, plunged the lows, went to 1140, which was our predicted low, and said, oh. No more selling down here, and it went up to over 1,300. Now we're laboring below that level. That's my next key level and goal, by the way, is to get clearly out above 1,300 on a weekly close. Um, I did, in a recent report, plot an important relationship, I think, that is now shifted. And it changes day by day, but I plot it on a monthly and a weekly basis, and that is the spread relationship between gold and the S&P. So do you want to be long gold or long stocks? Well, for the last three years, it's better to be long stocks, not gold, obviously. Mm-hmm. But since 2000, if you bought gold, then it was at 19% of the price of the S&P. It went way up into the, I think, 70 80% of the price of the S&P, dropped down into the 55% area. So even mm-hmm. the recent low in the gold spread versus the S&P was in the mid-50s on a percent basis versus the starting point at 19% in 2000. So yeah. despite the big drop in gold, gold still long-term has held its value. And in my assessment, that spread has now turned back up. I think it is now back in positive mode for gold after a three-and-a-half-year decline. And going forward, it's better to own gold than the S&P. So we want to see 1300 taken out. That, that will uh, convince you that, that we're... On a, on a weekly close, preferably monthly, oh. get up above there. We traded above there two weeks ago, briefly. Yes. But I want, to, I want to hook up, put the elbow over the curbstone there, and it closed well above 1300 on a weekly close. Uh, it's not just a price issue at all. It's a lot of momentum factors involved there. 
Uh, and that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's my last uh, bull hurdle. You crossed that and one. Then, uh, and then I think, though, you did talk about 1600 being the one after that. Uh, 1550 is my next target, but I actually see reason that if you get... There's, a, there's basically a vacuum in gold right now between about the low 1300s and going up to 1550. In other words, we've labored layer after layer from 1140 to get up to here. Yeah. But I don't think that process will be that layered if you can get out above 1300. I think there could be a relative vacuum where you can quickly get up into the 15s. Um, and I could even see if you get there this year, even by mid-year, let's say you could see 1600. Let's get over the 1300 first. Uh, but I think there could be a, a reverse oil situation there if gold does that. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and I look forward to talking to you about it some more. Uh, certainly, um, so you see the equity markets uh, weak here? Uh, I think that equity Michael? markets are topping, period, exclamation point. Annual momentum says so. Most yeah. of my long-term momentum indicators resoundingly say do not trust rallies. They are fitful. They are trying to fight that which they're probably not going to overcome. Uh, I would uh-huh. also circle the low we just made. It was just above uh, 1980 the other day. Yes. Uh, I think that was an emotionally exhaustive level for the bulls who've been probed to the downside all during last month. They got down into the 1980s. We took out those lows with the stab the other day, and it didn't follow through. Therefore, they think, oh, the party's on again. Yep. I do not think the party's on. I think if you go back through that low, you'll have emotional capitulation. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and I, I, we're really looking forward to talking to you again, Michael. I hope you can join us again uh, next week, perhaps for an update on these markets. It's, it's, uh, you, you really provide very fascinating commentary, and I know in looking at your work uh, that it's, it's worth paying some attention to it. And I might just tell our listeners uh, before we go to commercial break that they should go to Oliver MSA. That's Mary Sam uh, Albert Albert. That's OliverMSA.com for more information on, on Michael's service and to sign up for his, uh, for his uh, very excellent, prolific uh, newsletter that comes out multiple times a week. Thank you very much, Michael, for being with us. I, I look forward to doing it again next week, Thank hopefully. You, Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Well, folks, we're going to go to commercial break, but don't go away because coming back uh, with us will be Dr. Quentin Henning. He's been on this show before. Uh, he is the CEO of Novo Resources, uh, one of the most exciting uh, stories that I have seen in uh, decades in this business. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He's an exploration geologist who is very highly regarded amongst his professional peers. He is the president and CEO of Novo Resources. Uh, it's a company that I've been following now for a couple of years. Dr. Henning is not only held in high esteem by his peers, but he is credited with being a very creative thinker. And indeed, uh, it is his ability to think scientifically outside of the uh, conventional wisdom box uh, in the field of geology that I think makes Dr. Quinton and the company that he heads up, Nova Resources, one of the most exciting stories that I have heard and have uh, looked at in uh, several decades uh, in writing my newsletter about junior mining companies. Dr. Henning has uh, led a very successful exploration efforts in the past, uh, having played a major role in the discovery of, of uh, at least three significant deposits. Uh, he uh, received his Ph.D. at the Colorado School of Mines, uh, and uh, that was really in the area that uh, he has really utilized very much in his work uh, in uh, mineralogy and exploration geology. So uh, welcome, uh, Quentin. It's really good to have you with me again. Thank you very much, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Always good to talk to you. A very, very interesting story. Novo Resources Trades in Canada under the symbol NVO, and you can buy it in the United States as I have under the symbol NSR, I'm sorry, NSPRF, uh, Nancy, Sarah, Peter, Ralph, Frank. Uh, earlier in the day, at least, it was trading in Canada at $1.05. It puts it around 80 cents or so in the U.S. Uh, in U.S. money, but it's got a market cap of around 50, uh, 52 million U.S., something like that. So, uh, you know, Quentin, while you've been involved uh, in many projects throughout uh, your career, sort of traditional projects, I guess, much more, uh, this one that you're working on now is really quite unique. And uh, and I think what's, what's really interesting here is how you've come up with a theory uh, you, you, your work at the Colorado School of Mines, as I understand, and also at Newmont, uh, you had a chance of examining and looking at Whitwater's Rand Rock. Now, the Whitwater's Rand, for those who may not be familiar, is one of the largest gold deposits, I, I think, in the world. I mean, I think something like a third to a half or something like, correct me if I'm wrong, Quentin, but major portion, of, a big chunk of all the gold that's ever been mined on Earth has come from this one area of South Africa. So, uh, Quentin, you had a, a theory, the traditional theories about how the Witwaters Rand was, deposit was formed, you weren't satisfied with. Um, tell us why not, and then tell us what you came up with, what your theory was sure, or yeah. is. All right. Uh, to give a, a little context for listeners, uh, the Vitz is, is a very large deposit, as you, you described it. Effectively, is if you think of it as the Middle East of gold, uh, that's a good analogy. Uh, the Vitz Basin is located in South Africa. It covers an area of about 30,000 square kilometers. Uh, it has, has at least five major gold fields, each of which have contributed at least 200 million ounces in production. Now, it's hosted, this gold is hosted by sedimentary rocks. Many people think of, of gold as occurring in veins and 
maybe disseminated in intrusions, you know, magmatic intrusions, things like this. Vitz is a different type of deposit. It's hosted by conglomerates, and the gold that accrues in these conglomerates is of uh, great controversy as to how it how it got there. There's two main theories, uh, I would say, over the past hundred years that two main theories that have really, you know, tried tried their best, say, to explain how this this gold originated in the conglomerates. One says that the gold was washed in. It was actually brought in uh, by by waters as, as they washed gravels out of a highland somewhere. That highland, you know, nobody's quite sure where it was situated, but the, the idea is that these rivers washed the gravel down to the ocean or to the shore shoreline and deposited these gravels in sheet-like formations along with gold. Uh, it's, it's a good idea. It's an interesting idea. You know, it's very easy to wrap one's mind around this idea that these are fossil alluvial deposits uh, in the, the kind of the conventional sense. But uh, there's some problems with that. Firstly, the gold in the vits tends to be fairly fine grain. Um, one would expect the gold to be dispersed, not necessarily concentrated in such an environment being fine grain as it is. Uh, the second issue is, and this is really, really important, it, it's, it's just, it's kind of mind-boggling to think that there would have been load deposits, load gold deposits, meaning like veins and things like this, mm-hmm. that would have contained enough gold to, to then be eroded and, and shed into this basin, forming these vast deposits. Now, it's, it's just almost hard to, to fathom how you could create something like this. Mm-hmm. Now, to give you to give you where I'm coming from, uh, if you think about the Superior Province in Canada, say it's a big uh, greenstone belt or granite greenstone terrain that is of similar age to the bits, and let's say you know that it took something like the Superior Province to to erode and then form the Witwatersrand Basin. Well, the Superior Province to this point has only yielded something like 250 million ounces of gold. Mm. Yet the Vitz, mm-hmm. the mined gold out of the Vitz is nearly one and a half billion, and there's a, around another billion and a half ounces left in inventory as, as reserves, resources, and so forth. Wow. So, you know, it's basically an order of magnitude more gold than you could generate from the most prolific granite greenstone terrain on Earth. You know, so that's, that's hard to uh, answer. All right, so the second model that explains the formation of the Witwatersrand is, is called the hydrothermal model. It basically argues that hot waters, uh, you know, may be associated with magmatism at depth. These hot waters emerged into these sedimentary rocks, brought along dissolved gold, and precipitated that gold in these conglomerate horizons. There's some issues around this model. For one, we don't really see any concentrations of gold along the, the actual faults and structures that these geologists you know, postulate brought these fluids in. So it, it's almost as if these fluids magically apparated and dissolved their, or precipitated their gold and then went on their way with leaving very, very little effect uh, to the rocks around them. That's kind of astonishing. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the second issue and an argument that is against this is that, uh, you know, it's the same argument I just gave for the, the alluvial deposits. How do you create a huge hydrothermal gold system like this? Uh, the biggest hydrothermal gold deposit on Earth is perhaps the, the biggest single, I should say, gold 
hydrothermal gold deposit, perhaps Marin Town, which is in Uzbekistan. Uh, it's something on the order of 150 million ounces uh, in, in one deposit. Here in the United States, we have the, the Carlin District, which is several deposits, but you know it, it's comparable size. Again, the size of the biggest hydrothermal deposits we can see is you know well under an order of magnitude smaller than the Vits. You know, so again, it's a, it's a difficult one to explain. Um, I'm going to jump into to my views. Uh, yes, you know, please. Unless you have any questions here, I'll no, no. I, I would just I would just tell our listeners that I, I hope you're following Dr. Quinton because this may sound like something uh, you nodded your head over when you were taking your geology course that you were forced to take in Geology 101. But believe me, it's not hypothetical. What we're talking about here is the potential to understand why novo resources may be on to something very, very significant. And so I please try to follow Dr. Henning's, I think, very clear explanation. But for those of us who may not be, uh, you know, living in this world all the time, concentrate on what he has to say because he just explained to you why it's highly illogical, the traditional explanation as to why and how the Whitwaters ran this magnificent gold deposit was formed. So Dr. Henning came up with his own theories about how it, how that much gold could have gotten in such a narrow, uh, small area. And that's what he's about to tell us now, because this is going to lead us on to the story of Novo Resources and what he is doing in northwestern Australia now. Go ahead, Dr. Henning. Okay. Uh, the, the shortcomings of the two models I just spoke about um, have to be addressed. In order to, to have a, a model that's comprehensive and really you know, holds water, you have to address uh, issues like this. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was working on some rock samples from the Witwatersrand Basin. I was uh, dissolving in, in various acids to, to kind of pick apart the minerals out of these conglomerates, examine them. Uh, the work I was doing was trying to replicate some work that was done by a fellow named Dieter Hallbauer that was done, I believe, in the late 1970s. When he dissolved some rocks, he found that there were pieces of carbon. This is actual mm. carbon like you would uh, like think little bits of coal. It's, it's sure. effectively you know, f- particles or fragments of uh, black carbon that looked no different than the coal that would go into a power plant. Okay? Uh, he found these particles as he dissolved these rocks, and he found that they had shapes and forms that resembled uh, fossil life. Now, to put this in context, you've you got to think about when the Vits formed. It formed over 2.7 billion years ago, so this is very, very old. Uh, it's during a time when we don't really have a lot of information about what life would have looked like here on Earth, how it would have, you know, what, what types of life forms and whatnot there were, yet here he was finding, uh, you know, effectively what looked like fossil fragments uh, in these rocks. Now, turns out those fossil fragments are also closely associated with the gold. Uh, you often see gold in direct contact with the carbon. Uh, I did my work. I uh, dissolved several samples, found the very same structures and, and stuff that uh, Dieter Hallbauer had seen, uh, close association of carbon with gold. Uh, we did some analyses on the carbon. We found that it was a substance referred to as kerogen. Kerogen is effectively um, carbonaceous material that is left behind. If you say that you buried some sort of uh, you know, organic thing like a tree or some algae or something, let's say you buried that in the ground, you, you warmed it up a bit, 
as that carbon decomposes, you cook off what's called bitumen, and you leave behind kerogen. Well, we found that the carbon was kerogen, so it's, it you know, definitely resembles um, carbon of you know organic nature, organic origin. So that, that gave us uh, a lot of support. Then, um, after I looked at a few conglomerates, I noticed that uh, some of the particles of carbon looked like they were detrital. They were actually pieces of carbon that had kind of broken away from something else and had tumbled into the conglomerate. And that got me thinking, well, maybe we're looking at the Witwatersrand all backwards. Perhaps the, the gold in this carbon is actually forming in the basin along with the deposition of the conglomerates and, and you know, other sedimentary rocks. Maybe, maybe we're you know, grasping for this elusive source that's supposed to be outside of the basin when in, instead the source is actually right there in the basin and that this gold, along with the carbon, uh, these fossil life forms, was actually formed in those sedimentary rocks during the time of deposition. Mm. All right, so uh, to, to cut a very long story a bit shorter, you know, I know we only have a, about 10 minutes here, um, I, I took these ideas to, uh, it forward with me and uh, started thinking about where else one might find another Witwatersrand basin. In other words, I, I recognize that it must be important to look at rocks that are similar age. So, you know, I started looking around at, at sedimentary rocks that were, say, 2.7 to 2.9 billion years ago, uh, old. Uh, it was also important to have the right types of sedimentary rocks, you know, sandstones and conglomerates, things like this, uh, and that they, these rocks were deposited in a nearshore environment. Now, here's, mm -hmm. here's the model in a nutshell. The, the carbon, if it's, it, it appears to be indeed organic. It's closely associated with the gold. The idea is that you had shallow um, estuaries or bays, if you, you want to think of it like that, where you had a substrate on the bottom of the ocean on which this, this early life would have taken root. Now, what would have been the source of gold? Well, I think the ocean water itself. If mm -hmm. you model the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere and the ocean waters back at this time, there would have been no oxygen at that time. There would have been things like hydrogen sulfide, uh, per perhaps a bit of methane, and other reduced uh, gases. Now, in that environment, gold is actually quite soluble. Today, we have about four parts per trillion gold in ocean water. Back then, it could have been much higher, maybe maybe. Uh, four parts per billion even. So, you know, three orders of magnitude more gold. Now, to put that in perspective, one cubic kilometer seawater sea would have contained uh, four tons of gold, if this is the case. Now, put that, that gold-bearing seawater in direct contact with some of the first photosynthesizing life. So these would have been, think of them like uh, bacterial mats or cyanobacterial mats or uh, even algae. One of the things uh, gold that's in soluble form does not like is, is oxygen. Right? As soon as it sees oxygen, that, that gold breaks free from whatever's helping it stay dissolved, and it precipitates. So here you have early life. It's kicking off oxygen. You've got a bit of photo, you know, photosynthesis developing here. Uh, that gold that's dissolved in the seawater sees that life, and that oxygen being bubbled off, and boom, it 
precipitates out, and effectively you, precip- you produce these deposits through precipitation over a, you know, a, a, for perhaps a long time period, maybe a few thousand years or a few tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. You know, subsequent, those were then buried up, those, those uh, algal mats, same, uh, were buried up and preserved. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in the instance of the Witwatersrand, it was preserved quite well. Today we have, you know, huge volumes of gold. I wanted to find the next one. Uh, we looked around at basins all over the planet. We looked at something like 90 basins. I identified about uh, half a dozen that were similar age to the Vits. Uh, like I said a minute ago, it took us to northwest Australia. I recognized the Fortescue group in, in the Pilbara region in northwest Australia was prospective for similar types of deposits. You had sandstones and conglomerates being deposited during that, that you know, very special time frame from about 2.7 to 2.9 billion years ago. And lo and behold, there there's gold occurrences. There's actually numerous gold occurrences across an area uh, of several hundred uh, square kilometers in which you can find conglomerates. Uh, some of them have been mined, you know, on uh, artisanal basis. Uh, some of them have been perhaps a little bit more extensively mined. Uh, there's alluvial, like modern alluvial gold coming off of these things, so prospectors will go out and they'll find bits of gold here and there. Anyway, it, it certainly looked, you know, kind of smelled like that, that duck, you know, so to speak. Um, it took a while to get this, this project put together, but, you know, I basically structured Novo to pursue this opportunity. Okay. All right. All right. With a limited amount of time left here, Quentin. Um, so you, uh, I know one of the, you, the, the, the Whitwaters ran, you had incredibly rich reefs, they're called. Like, I think you call them carbon leaders. Uh, you haven't seen that yet in your deposit, but you've seen, because you say it's where you're dealing, you're drilling so far, you're exploring higher up in the system, closer to the shoreline. Is that right? Yes, we're, we're in what's called a proximal environment. In other words, we're at a point where rivers were indeed bringing gravels in. Now, we find mm-hmm. bits of carbon, and we've, I've shown some photos, I think, in the news release, released last year, uh, bits of carbon that are kerogen. They resemble the carbon you would see in the bits, but we haven't found anything, you know, since it's strict to uh, like a carbon leader. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you're, you're putting a deep hole down. I think you're expecting results back from that, that there could be a chance. Uh, am, I, am I saying that properly? There could be a chance that you could intersect something like that? I would say in the deep hole that we drilled, uh, we, we describe it in a news release sometime mid-December. Uh, we certainly saw conglomerates. They, were, they had smaller class size, so they appear to be more distal, meaning they're further from that shoreline. Uh, whether we're in a carbon leader environment, I can't say for sure. Uh, you know, the other thing people have got to bear in mind, we have several thousand square kilometers of, of ground. Yes. So we're basically go, you know, just getting our, our, our feet wet here. We're starting to step out and see what's out further in the basin. Uh, to put it, you know, uh, a different way, we've, we've drilled up a bit of a resource there at Beaton's Creek, and, and we, we're looking to advance that. Uh, as quickly as possible, you know, you can read our news releases late last year about taking this thing towards production. But now we're starting to look at the geology of the basin as a whole. That, that first deep hole we drilled, uh, quite interesting. It had some nice sulfide-bearing conglomerates. Uh, we're, it's in for assay at, at present. Uh, we hope to see even some sniffs of gold that tell us, hey, we're, we're going in the right direction here. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, the thing that makes me excited about this is not only the prospects of, of coming up and possibly finding another Whitwater's Rand type of deposit, but it's the near-term prospects of producing. And again, Quentin, you uh, you have something like 420,000 ounces in your 43101 resource grading 1.47 grams per ton, which isn't too bad, but it, it, in fact, it's pretty good, especially given the fact that your metallurgy, as I understand it, is, is very straightforward, very easy probably, free milling, as they say. But also, uh, I think you did some bulk sampling that suggests that possibly those grades might be higher. Is that fair to say, or is it too early to say that yet? It, we, we do have uh, an issue with the, the, the coarseness, and, and you know, that is a bit different than the VITs here. You know, we have both coarse and fine gold here, so sure. both types. Uh, so, but it's that nugget effect. It's very hard to evaluate uh, the nugget effect, and usually it gives a bit of upside because if you think about it, you're, you know, if you just randomly grab a rock, you're, you're not going to get those nuggets. And once you start processing of a large volume of rocks, you do see the nuggets. You see, so, um, yes, we're starting to see uh, an uptick in the grade as we do the bulk sampling. Uh, we're hopeful that, that we go, once we go from drill results, say, to, uh, to, to actual mining, that we see that, that bump. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're unfortunately we're just we're really out of time now. Um, but I would say to my listeners that you have some news coming out. You'll be reporting on that deep drill hole, I think, in the not too distant future. You'll also, uh, at some point here, a few months down the road, perhaps updating your resource. Uh, that's correct. We we aim to update the resource with the oxide drilling that we're doing at present. Uh, we're also, as you know, taking the project to feasibility as quickly as possible. We're, we're aiming to put the thing in production by early 2016. Uh, I've got a, a few, a bit of information coming out here shortly on the mining concept, some photos and whatnot that people can see the type of deposit we're dealing with. It's an amazing opportunity for very, very low-cost production. Well, it certainly is an exciting story, and as I've said, uh, one of uh, it is actually my top holding. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Of course, there's no guarantees in this business. Those of us who have been around it know it's a very high-risk, high-return uh, business. When you're successful, you do extremely well. But, it's, uh, but this one looks good. Quinton, we're out of time. I hope to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Uh, it's Novo Resources. Uh, that Just people should go to your website. There's a lot of great information right there. Thanks, Jake. So. All right, thank you, Quentin. Well, folks, uh, don't go away because we've got another very exciting and important guest, Peter Wallison. He's a coordinator of the AIE's Program on Financial Policy Studies, and he's written a book called Hidden in Plain Sight that is really sending out some warning signals about uh, about the housing market and about regulation and the problems that it, rather than solving uh, the problems that regulation oftentimes causes. And uh, I think Peter's message is going to be very, very important. So please stick around and listen to what he has to say. We'll be right back with Peter Wallison. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole 5 of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. 
Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TSXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Peter Wallison. He's a coordinator of uh, AEI's program on financial policy studies, research, uh, researches banking, insurance, and securities regulation. He was former general counsel of the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, White House counsel to President Reagan, and a distinguished AEI scholar. Uh, Peter, who was uh, the lone dissenter on the Congressionally Authorized Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, uh, has just written a book, a very interesting and I think very informative and timely book called Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again. Welcome, Peter. It's really good to have you with me. Great to be with you, Jay. Thanks for the invitation. It's uh, it, it's really great to talk to you. I I. You know, this obviously this housing crisis uh, that we endured and it threw us into the worst economic contraction uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, some people think it hasn't really improved all that much as much as the government statistics suggest. But uh, your book, um, just tell us why. I mean, that, that's a distant memory to, to many folks in this country. I mean, 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, really. Uh, you know, the general feeling is we're out of it. We've escaped it. We don't have any problems. So why is this book so important today, six years after, after the crisis? Well, you know, it's extremely important for the American people to understand what actually happened and why it happened in the crisis. Sure. Because if they have the wrong ideas, we're going to do it again. Right. Uh, and I think right now the American people have the wrong ideas because they have been told by their government and they've been told by the media that the crisis was caused by insufficient regulation of the financial system and greed on Wall Street and things of that kind. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, in fact, the crisis was caused by U.S. government housing policy, and that's what the book shows. Uh, Okay, well, let's let's get into that. Um, You know, I mean, the general theory is, the general idea is that, as you say, the greedy bankers... Um, you know, I, I think I, there was a whistleblower who I saw recently, maybe on Bloomberg or someplace, uh, 
uh, where, and I think she maybe worked at J.P. Morgan, and she was talking about, uh, she said, we knew uh, that we were misrepresenting uh, these, these mortgages when we sold them off, uh, and, but we weren't really allowed to be forthright about what kind of garbage was in these package deals. So, I mean, is, are you saying that there's, no, that there's no irresponsibility on the part of Wall Street at all, or, or is it a mixture of things? It's, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, in, the, in 2008, just before the financial crisis, a majority of mortgages in the United States were what we would call subprime or very weak mortgages with, say, mm-hmm. low down payments and that sort of thing. The right. majority of mortgages in the United States, of those, 76% were on the books of government agencies. Uh-huh. The remaining 24% were on private books. So if you are looking for the principal responsibility for the crisis, and the crisis, of course, was caused by the default of so many of these mortgages, these mm-hmm. subprime and other low-quality mortgages, then obviously the government was the one that created the demand for these mortgages far more than the private sector. Right. And there is there is more to be said about this because when the the mortgages that were created by the private sector originated by the private sector were originated principally in response to requests by government agencies, principally Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, two gigantic government backed mortgage companies, that they wanted mortgages that had been made to people who were at or below the median income in the places where they lived. And Mm -hmm. the reason they wanted these mortgages was because the government had placed quotas on them starting in 1992 that required them to buy those mortgages. So they went to the banks and the originators and they said, sell us mortgages for people who are at or below the median income. it became very difficult as the, the quota began at 30%. But by the year 2000, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, had raised the quota to 50%. And by wow. 2008, the quota was 56%. So more than half of all mortgages that Fannie and Freddie were allowed to buy had to be made to people who were at or below the median income. Now, you can imagine that it is very hard to get prime mortgages when you're dealing primarily with people below the median income. And so they reduced their underwriting standards substantially, beginning in the the mid-1990s all the way through 2008. And that caused a decline in underwriting standards throughout the market because Fannie and Freddie were the dominant players in the market. And so by 2008, we ended up with more than a majority of all the mortgages in the United States being these subprime and low-quality mortgages. And most of them had, by that time, gone through the banks to Fannie and Freddie, and that's where they were on, uh, on government balance sheets. So you say 24% of those mortgages were on, in the hands of the private banks. Um, was there pressure put on them as well, I understand, from the government to, uh, to the private banks to, to make these loans? Yeah, there was, but uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have the data on that. Um, there, there is something called the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires right. the banks to make loans in the areas that they service to people who um, are uh, at low income. 
uh, within those service areas. Um, and the banks have been making those loans, but the loans were very, very hard to track. We can't actually tell how many such loans were made. It's much easier to do it with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac kept these records of the loans they were buying, and we could then, after the crisis, and after they became insolvent and the government um, took them over, they began to disclose the quality of the mortgages that they had been buying. Now, many, many banks may have been doing the same thing in response to the CRA, but they don't disclose. And one of the reasons they don't disclose, I'm afraid, is that it is politically... Uh, troubling to do that because when you disclose the fact that you are required by the government to make loans you would not ordinarily make, that means that the people who are um, able to make prime mortgages, able to meet all the terms of a prime mortgage, are going to be paying the cost of these mortgages that you have been making on which you're going to be taking losses. So uh, banks are not eager to disclose their compliance with the Community Reinvestment Act. And so I did not cover that in great detail in the book, although it's discussed. Mm-hmm. Certainly you would think that the banks would feel a fiduciary responsibility also to their depositors. At least there was like maybe that's an old-fashioned concept now that since everybody gets bailed out, but you'd think that the banks would... Uh, uh, not everybody gets bank bailed out. The big guys get bailed out. Uh, that the banks would feel a, a fiduciary responsibility to the depositors as well as their shareholders. Yeah, actually they do. And I have in the book I quote one community banker who te- was telling his shareholders, um, "I'm very sorry about uh, some of these loans that we've made, but um, the FDIC was in here and they were very insistent that we had to make these CRA type loans." And the penalties for not doing that um, are very steep because if you, if you get a low rating under CRA, then you can't engage in mergers or get approvals for various other things that banks need approvals for. That has persuaded banks that they have, if, they, if that bank is ever going to have any value in a merger or in any other way, they have to make these loans. So the CRA is important. It's just not as important in terms of the total number of bad loans that were made, not as important as what Fannie and Freddie bought um, on behalf of the government because of these quotas. Yeah, well, it seems like the government, and I'm wondering, um, you've served a Republican president. Uh, The pressure from the government comes from both parties, I suppose, right, to an extent at least. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, much more from the Democratic Party, we have to say. Yeah. But uh, this is not really a partisan issue because um, the Bush administration was equally, perhaps not equally guilty, but but guilty of uh, pursuing these affordable housing requirements. That's what they were called, the affordable housing goals, up to 2008. They took right. over in 2000, and they continued until 2008. The difference is that Bush, in his memoirs, apologized. <laughs> he mm-hmm. said, you know, I was very happy to see that so many uh, low-income people were able to buy homes, but I didn't realize the kinds of risks that we were creating. And yeah. that's, that's the fact. Well, of course, uh, we come to the rescue. The government bailed everybody out, and everything is fine again, right? Well, <laughs> I wish it were, but you see, once you 
once you blame the private sector and you say mm-hmm. the financial crisis was the result of insufficient regulation of the private sector, there's one result, and that is that the government then adopts a new regulatory law called the Dodd-Frank Act, the most repressive piece of regulatory legislation since the New Deal. That is responsible for the very slow recovery we have had from the recession of 2009 that followed the financial crisis. This is the slowest recession since the mid, the slowest recovery from a recession since the mid-60s. And that, I believe, is because of this very repressive Dodd-Frank Act. But one other thing happens, and that is, if you blame the private sector, then you're not to blame. That is, the government isn't to blame for what it did. And as long as that is true, now the government can go on and do the same thing again. And that's what, unfortunately, we are seeing. The government is doing exactly what they did before the financial crisis. Just more of it. And so, so your conclusion, so your conclusion is then that they could be setting the table for another event? Absolutely. Unless, unless we change the policies. And the only way we will change the policies if the American, is if the American people understand what happened. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, unless you understand and properly diagnose the problem, you're going to make you're going to come to wrong conclusions about its cause, and you're uh, going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. I, I could find a number of policy areas in U.S. government that that seems to happen. It seems like there must be somebody that's that's happy with the way things exist, uh, and they don't want to change. I suppose. Yeah. So I guess right. you're, you know, certainly. I mean, it would seem to me that there also uh, the agencies, the credit rating agencies, though, uh, would you put some blame there as well? Because it seemed to me maybe the government, again, was putting pressure on the, on the, uh, on the rating agencies to, to allow all these mo- loans to be purchased and so forth. That's hard to know, but I suspect uh, the rating agencies uh, were also somewhat at fault. I just, it's very hard to understand why their, their um, uh, models of the of the financial system and and the uh, uh, housing economy were so uh, bad, but one factor that I mention in the book that is I think significant is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did not disclose the number of subprime and other weak mortgages that they were buying, so that and all the time while the rating agencies were rating some of these. Um, mortgage-backed securities as triple A, that is the private securities, they were rating them as triple A, they did not know that there were about three times as many um, uh, subprime loans outstanding as there actually were. Because Fannie and Freddie were not disclosing it. If they had known that, it's entirely possible that they would have changed their models and they would have said, gee, this is going to be very risky if any of these loans, if, if, if we ever come to the end of this bubble that we had between 1997 and 2007, if we ever come to the end of it, there's going to be hell to pay because all of these real, really poor quality mortgages are going to, dec- are going to default when, yeah. when um, everything stops. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's a tragic period of our history, no doubt about it. But I would really suggest to our listeners, hidden in plain sight what really caused the world's most uh, the world's worst financial crisis and why it could happen again it's a must read as a citizen you deserve 
you owe it to your fellow Americans to read this book and to explain to them. Uh, we need to understand what caused the problem in order to fix it. And I want to thank you, Peter, very much for being with us today. Sorry we don't have more time. I had plenty more questions to ask you, but I really hope our, our listeners will go out and, and read this book because I think it's a okay, very important. Jay. Thank you very much for writing it I- and sharing your time with us today, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Well, folks, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're going to have Richard Mayberry with us. He's the author of Mayberry's Early Warning Report. We'll also be talking uh, to the CEO of an exploration company uh, that uh, is uh, on to what I think could be a very significant gold copper discovery in Ecuador. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for making this show financially viable. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 